You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. This is the CRM Archaeology Podcast. It's the show where we pull back the veil of cultural resources management archaeology and discuss the issues that everyone is concerned about. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 152 for December 5th, 2018. I'm your host, Chris Webster. On today's show, we talk about historical archaeology with longtime host of this podcast, Dr. Bill White, who's now a professor at the University of California at Berkeley. So get out your can and bottle guides because the CRM Archaeology Podcast starts right now. All right, welcome to the show, everyone. Joining me today is Bill in California. Good morning. Stephen in Calgary. Hi. East Coast Bill in Maryland. Hey there. And Doug in Scotland. Good evening. And we and we, we toyed with the idea of, of saying Dr. Bill and Master Bill, but I'm not sure if that's gonna catch on or not. So we'll, <laughs> <laughs> we'll just we'll just figure it out. Hopefully now that Bill Octor, East Coast Bill or Master Bill has been on for a few episodes, maybe uh, our listeners will start being able to differentiate their voices and know which bill we're talking about when we're uh, when we're on here. So Anyway, we managed to make it work when we had two Chris's on the show, so I, I think it'll work with two Bills on the show, so that'll be okay. Uh, so today, we're going to talk about, as I mentioned in the introduction, historical archaeology, and we have somebody who is a, uh, shall I say, historical archaeology expert, uh, Dr. Bill. I don't know if the, if you if you would go by the term expert, but you're at least a professor at Berkeley, and you're teaching historical archaeology and things like that. We've got your syllabus for the class you just taught this semester, so... Uh, what are we going to talk about on this episode? Well, we're, yeah, I, I guess I am a expert in historical archaeology now. It's it's weird to hear that said out loud. <laughs> <laughs> you are I mean, the expert. I'm going to have to have my mom listen to that part. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, I I do teach at uh, Berkeley now, and uh, before that, I did historical archaeology for a long time for uh, several different uh, cultural resources companies. So uh, today we're, we're going to talk about historical archaeology. I guess I would have to say, first of all, especially if you're um, listening to this and you're a student or you're a, a, you know early career professional, or even if you've actually been in archaeology for a long time, if you want to survive in, in um, archaeology, cultural resource management, you're going to need to know your prehistoric stuff for sure. And if you want to actually keep getting paid, if you're an expert in historical archaeology, that goes a long way. Uh, my, I started off doing prehistoric archaeology because I feel like college training really emphasizes that. And there's, you know, a need, I guess we could say, uh, there's not going to be any more prehistoric sites created ever again. So it's more important for us to get things right on the prehistoric ones. Mm -hmm. Whereas every day, thousands of historic buildings and whole subdivisions become historical or potentially historical. So there's not going to be any end to uh, historical archaeology. So I guess historical archaeology is a growth field, if you think about it that way. <laughs> There's never going to be an end to the potential for historic sites to be created. So uh, getting in on that really it, it gives you a leg up in the industry. And um, uh, starting from a point of uh, prehistoric archaeology, it was kind of a, a disconnect to uh, switch over to historical archaeology because uh, as an undergrad, I, I focused on uh, all the North American tribes, North American prehistory, uh, South American prehistory. My uh, university had several different courses on that. So I took all these different prehistoric archaeology courses, and there was no historical archaeology anything for undergrads. And in fact, there was no one really on the, the faculty there at, at my undergrad institution that was doing any historical archaeology. So uh, you just got everything from a standpoint of ceramics and uh, lithics. Yeah. So uh, when it came time for me to do field school, I think I was halfway through my degree. I, I took my field school when I was going into my junior year, maybe as a junior going into senior year. Um, there was there was only really two, you know, functional choices for me. I, I'm from Idaho, so uh, the University of Idaho was doing a field school on a historical Native American allotment in Oklahoma. And uh, my own university, Boise State, was doing a prehistoric dig in the Owyhee Desert. And uh, the person who was running it thought that it was supposed to be um, just like 
uh, I don't know, uh, we were supposed to suffer austerities and stay in the Waihi Desert. If you've ever been <laughs> to the Great Basin in the summer, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, if you've ever been to the Great Basin, you've probably gone to an actual settlement like Ely or uh, Reno or something like that, where there's humans that have all congregated in one area. But surrounded by that is this vast area where we used to taste test nuclear weapons and we mine for minerals and stuff mm-hmm. called the great basin where there's kind of nobody and nothing in the place where we were supposed to go there was no showers or anything we were all supposed to supply our own tents and eat at a cafeteria whereas the other one we were staying at like a rural uh university college um dormitory where we would actually be able to get a shower and have running water every day and those kind of you know luxuries right mm-hmm. so i figure if you're going to suffer austerities why not go somewhere awesome like I don't know, uh, uh, Mongolia or, you know, the, the outback or something like that and find amazing stuff, not Owyhee County, Idaho. So I chose to go to the, uh, historical one. Uh, Mark Warner was the, the teacher, the instructor of the, the course, and he was a new professor at Idaho. And so I had, had to go from zero to 60 on nails and glass and all that stuff real quick. <laughs> So I, it wasn't that I preferred one over the other at the time still, but then when I went for my master's, uh, Idaho has a strong historical archaeology focus and they do, you know, American West historical archaeology a lot. So that was really uh, useful. Uh, and I took a lot of classes, historical artifact analysis and, you know, historical archaeology and different kinds of um, uh, kind of experimental archaeology classes where there was some kind of historical archaeology added to it. And at that point, after I finished, then I had a strong basis in historical archaeology. I also took lithic artifact analysis and lithics too. So when I finished, when I was looking for a job in CRM in the West, there was no one who knew glass or historical ceramics or any of that stuff. And so when I put my application in, it'd be like, holy cow, you know how to identify historic artifacts? And you you know gave a talk at the SHA on them. Okay, well, you can get a temporary position. We'll hire you, right? And ever since then, in the West, you know, it's been a bit easier. Back East, that's not the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of folks specializing on uh, colonial and historical archaeology back there. And it seems like in some ways, maybe the prehistoric stuff is more difficult to find people who are experts in that. But it, it really helped me in the West to know my tin cans and to be able to teach people all these different, uh, you know, historic items and, you know, their ages and possibly what they would mean, you know, for the site and for uh, historic preservation legislation. You know, Bill, before we go uh, too much further, I wonder if you can help us uh, for our international audience, because we do have people listening from other countries, um, help define what we mean when we're speaking about historical archaeology in this podcast, because in other parts of the world, there's been a little more fluid evolution of culture than one culture coming in and basically subsuming another and uh, like happened in this country. So we have kind of a defining line there, but can you help define like where in this country that defining line between prehistoric and, and historic archaeology is? Yeah. In, in the, in North America, what we're talking about is archaeology of sites and places that were occupied after Uh, 1492 that's just the arbitrary date right so Mm -hmm. we know that people from europe visited at least once hundreds of years before columbus we also know that native americans have many different kinds of writing systems sometimes they actually use an alphabet or whatever but many times they're symbols and they're culturally related so it's not that native american people were not writing down their history uh and and i'm not even uh, we know about Mayan and Aztec writing. They actually have, you know, uh, a form of uh, written language. I'm mm-hmm. talking about this, the symbols, uh, petroglyph, petroglyphs, um, symbolism on ceramics and other items, symbols on teepees. Those are all a form of history and all a form of writing. But archaeologists, because we come from a, you know, Euro- European-centric background, mm-hmm. we, we don't necessarily call that historical archaeology. And then there's also a weird thing that happens when uh, archaeologists are discussing time uh, sites that were, you know, either at the arrival of Columbus or after Columbus had arrived somewhere in the Western Hemisphere. But uh, maybe those people weren't quite in contact with European folks. And a lot of times they'll call it the proto-historic. And that all falls into a weird category, which is technically historical archaeology. But 
because we've decided to make this arbitrary boundary, archaeologists are considering that some kind of not quite historical. So this happens a lot in the Southwest when there's groups that it's not sure if Spanish folks or anyone you know had ever contacted them, but there's things that are going on and the things that are going on date to the time period when there hypothetically should have been um, Spanish uh, empire individuals in the area, but we don't actually know if they were there. You know, Arizona is the place where I have the most experience with a proto-historic. So that's the early boundary temporally for the historic period, as we call it, but also somewhat just as interesting, which is one of the things we're going to get into at the course of this podcast, is the later boundary. And, and the boundary in the context of, like, say, what archaeologists record, can you speak to that a little bit? Because, you know, people listening to this show are typically professional archaeologists, and we all have heard about the 50-year rule, but there's also a 100-year rule, depending on where you're at and what laws you're working under. So can you talk about the uh, the later temporal boundary to the historic period? What, they're, what we're talking about there is the 50-year rule in the National Historic Preservation Act that says that, you know, a site, before you start assessing significance and integrity, it has to be at least 50 years old or of extremely unique historic importance, like the World Trade Center uh, 9-11 uh, memorial in New York City. That's eligible mm-hmm. to be a national register site. I don't believe it actually is, but that's the kind of event that it takes for something to be less than 50 years and be historical. So when you're talking about the end boundary of history or historical archaeology, it's a it's a constantly it's a never-ending deadline in the United States. Uh, in Canada, um, I've I'm not familiar with all the Canadian rules. Maybe Stephen can clear us up, but I believe it's a 100-year rule, so the same thing is happening there. 1918 right now, stuff that was made in 1918, has the potential to qualify under a Canadian Historic Preservation Acts. Stuff that was created in 1968 in the United States has the potential to be historical, and that, that can cause a lot of complications. But the, the beginning of history for historical archaeologists is talking specifically with European colonization. The end date depends on the rule of whatever uh, jurisdiction you're working in or whatever kind of municipality. Well, there you go. I, I have heard of uh, the 100-year the rule in this country as well. Um, and I, I'm struggling to remember what that was based on. I think it was when I was uh, working on some U.S. Forest Service lands, um, they wanted us to record stuff that was 100 years back. Well, there's also kind of a, a thing that I've come across before where uh, the organization is planning, they're trying to make a 10-year plan or something like that or a 20-year plan. So you're supposed to assess items that are forty year, made 40 years ago or 30 years ago mm-hmm. because it's assumed, specifically in the case of like highway expansions, you know, they're not going to build a new interstate for 10, 20 years. But doing the uh, planning for that, oh, yeah. they're looking for, you know, is there something that's significant that was made in the 70s that by the time we get to 2040 when they're actually – you know, moving forward and starting to sell the bonds and starting to contract out the construction. Is there anything that we might run into? So you're out there looking at stuff, you know, like McDonald's and stuff and trying to evaluate the um, architectural integrity of a strip mall. That, that's interesting because th- that kind of flies in the face of the 50 year rule. The, the notion of the 50 year rule is that at 50 years, when you do the evaluation, like, if you try to do something younger, um, and I'm like, oh, well, that's not important. It's because it's not actually 50 years, and and the perspectives of eligibility change over time, right? So mm-hmm. I could see making a note of things that are like 40 years old and being like, we're going to have to revisit this, but preemptively evaluating something that's not actually 50 years doesn't really fly. Yeah, we we don't actually formally evaluate them. You're right. It is. It's a second appendix. Here are the things that are 40 years old, and they're all in there. Here are the things that are 30 years old, and they're all in there. But we're not doing like NRHP or NHPA evaluations. Isn't it also generally 50 years old and not still in use in some cases? Is, it, is that not the case? And also, I know that like each state and municipal law will have a slightly different de- definition. So it could be 100 years or 200 years or like 10 depending on how they've written the specific more local law. No, they can still be in use. I mean, like the, the, um, well, one example is the University of California football stadium is on the national register and it's a local landmark and it's a state 
historic property and they played a game there on the Saturday. Sorry, I was thinking the under the criteria for archaeological um yeah, it's only considered archaeology if it's not still in use. Criteria D or whatever. Isn't it there's the thing where you can't do criteria D unless it's no longer in use and then it's considered archaeology and then it's about uh does it have a the potential to tell us something about the past? Hmm, that's I don't know. Because, yeah, you're right. I understand what you're saying. If there was something that was still in use, we'd be talking about its structural integrity and value as a structure, as a, like, I mean, an archaeological feature. I guess it would be an archaeological feature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or its historical significance or, you know, because there's multiple criteria you could you could choose from to register a site. And, yeah, like you were saying, like 9-11, that would be historical. And I guess possibly because it was destroyed an archaeological site as well. Um, but then, yeah, you start, usually they, you just pick one criteria to um, list stuff under. Well, no, sometimes we stack it to make sure that it's happening. But also another thing that'll happen is in your evaluation of the archaeological remains, you'll cite certain strata that are the valuable ones, right? And this is one of, to my consternation, that would happen a lot. You take a backhoe and strip off this old ranching stuff because they'd say, this county has all these ranches. We don't need to know about any of this ranching stuff. What we're here for is the archaic, right? And then we'd kind of dig the hohokam to get to the archaic if it was actually there, right? So mm-hmm. in that case, it's an actual ranch or land that's being used to graze cattle. But the the thing that has been given the significance is the uh, archaic thing because that's extremely rare and so you know stripping off all the you just note bottles or whatever but you'd strip off down to where you think the archaic's at but if you hit hohokam you would stop there too because that's important and then dig it i mean i always thought that was kind of gymnastics that if this place was significant why shouldn't we treat all of it as significant but in reality it kind of it doesn't end up working out that way right i mean you see that here in the East Coast until recently on things like Civil War battlefields, where the idea of the period of significance is the period of the actual military battle in place. But you look at a place like Manassas or Monocacy or or Gettysburg, these are lived places with farms and people and and sort of whole lifeways happening before and after these events. But somehow this period of significance was like only for this one particular thing. It's getting a little better now. There's definitely some good work that's happening uh, in terms of the actual, like the surrounding plantations and sort of examining the immediate years before and afterwards. But that has definitely been a stumbling block, at least I see on these things, is this period of significance where you sort of get very myopic and focused on that one thing and ignore that these are continually lived places. Well, that happens all over the world, though. I mean, you you see you know, in other countries where they, they blow right through the Roman stuff because it's so thick and ubiquitous. You know what I mean? Like how many more, how much more information do we need on Roman ceramics in Italy? (laughs) All of it. All of it. Damn it. (laughs) I mean, there is a chance, there is a small chance that you would discover that one thing that was like super unique, but what does it mean in the larger context of the entire culture? You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, the other side of the coin is you only have so much time and money uh, to order to do all these things. So choices yeah. have to be made yeah. i mean the one thing to remember like especially this it's this in period discussion we're doing on uh, on historic archaeology is that these are all political decisions these are all just dis- collective yep. decisions made by a group of people about what they find to be important for them in this particular time period of the present yeah all right well that's a good point to take our first break we'll come back on the other side of this and bringing it back to crm archaeology um i got a question about project managers and budgets related to this. So we'll come back in just a minute. In the meantime, listen to this ad about WildNote. It's pretty great. We're hitting all the conferences and uh, you need a way to record digitally and it's ready to go. You can buy it now. Back in a second. Hey, podcast fans and digital archaeologists. Have you heard about WildNote? It's a data collection app that works online or offline on your smartphone or tablet, iOS or Android. It allows you to collect field data easily, manage data efficiently, and generate data reports and site records effortlessly. We have a growing list of state site forms built in for your use and some generic forms that will work anywhere. Check out the shovel testing and photograph forms. You can get a free all-access 30-day trial today by going to wildnoteapp.com. 
That's wildnoteapp.com for your free 30-day trial. Now back to the show. All right, welcome back to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 152. And we're talking with longtime and original co-host of the show, Dr. Bill White, about historic archaeology. And Bill, when we were talking at the end there, we were getting into a little bit of a discussion. And uh, uh, East Coast Bill brought this up as well uh, about really kind of about budgets and money and stuff like that. And since this is the CRM Archaeology Podcast, and this is the lens that we're sort of talking through this through, how would you as a project manager, somebody who's dealing with a budget and and working with a client and and working within, you know, local and state laws and regulations and knowing what you do about history, how would you how would you handle a situation where I mean you really do sometimes maybe need to dig through the historic layer, um, maybe for one reason or another, that historic layer is either extremely well known in that area, or maybe it's just barely historic, you know, it's like 1965 or something like that. And, but there's some really important stuff that you think might be subsurface and you've got to get through to that. How do you, how do you deal with that from a project manager standpoint and a a budgetary standpoint? That's a really tough question. Um, I guess it all depends on what kind of surveying methods you used, right? So in places where you don't really dig, that is the six trillion dollar question right uh <laughs> right. how much shit is below the ground that's always the question and so um you know from my experience in arizona you know you're really evaluating sites based on what you see on the surface and in the past million years of doing arizona archaeology they've they've discovered that sometimes evidence of uh you know surface prehistoric occupation will give way to huge, huge, you know, former settlements that you wouldn't even actually imagine would be there, right? So those, you know, making those kind of decisions really is like you identify the site on the surface and then the time period. If you have ceramics that you can actually date the time period, uh, you know, you would you would aim for that. And then there would be some kind of testing strategy once you knew the boundaries of the site, which, you know, I I think some people are shocked when you talk about backhoe, but in in Arizona, a lot of times, especially for CRM, the backhoe is essentially just like another trowel that people use to dig trenches, right? So then you dig some trenches that are X, Y, Z deep based on whatever the construction depths are going to be, or they could do something like, uh, you know, boreholes or coring or something like that, deep mechanically excavated holes. And then you would look at the strats and is there any kind of like buried stratigraphic horizon anymore, you know, uh, pits or anything like that that would give you that would give you a idea that there's a site beneath the ground right mm-hmm. so if you came to a place that was the 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 tough thing happens when you're out in the rural areas and you come across like an informal roadside dump so it's just a un unstructured dump not a sanitary landfill where people have been dumping from whatever town, the town may not even actually be there anymore, you know, like a mining town or something like that. There's just a mountain of stuff. And then you look in there, just like you're saying, and there's stuff that's from the 60s and stuff from the 80s that's thrown there because, you know, even though it's required in Arizona that people in rural areas have to pay for garbage collection, they don't actually always pay. And then also some, you know, municipalities allow you to take your own garbage away, which a lot of times people don't drive all the way to the dump. They just dump it right in this well-known dump and so Mm -hmm. you look and you'll see stuff from like the 30s and 20s and even before that and then there's stuff from the 80s on top of it and then that's where you have to ask the question you know what's the integrity of this thing people have been just dumping garbage for a long time how what are you really going to impact on this historic dump you might say let's take the backhoe next to it anyway while you're digging the fiber optic line we say monitoring we suggest maybe we watch this thing because if we get way down there and there's these 1800s bottles, then we've got this stratified thing that, yeah, you might want to take off the sixties back to like the thirties or twenties or some other arbitrary event that happened in that history, strip that down and then just only collect the 1800s bottles because that's what we don't really know a lot about that mining town or something like that. Right. Mm -hmm. So that that's how you would try to evaluate it there. Now quantifying that that's the, that's the big thing, right? Because in areas like Washington, when I used to work there and we dug shovel probes, it was all about how many items did you get at what level and what time period do they date to. So if you dig in a place and then you do rip through the blackberries and get all the way down to these 1800s bottles, then you're trying to quantify 
how many artifacts are in there based on your shovel probe and then extrapolate that to the size of the unit to give you a better idea of how much the testing or the data collection is going to get out of that area. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, um, sort of going further east, uh, where there's a a deeper historical record, um, some of the, the tools that you can use pre-field work are, are historic maps where you can go to the 18th and 19th century and see the evolution of road networks in an area. So uh, was there a road uh, near where you're testing that may be not there anymore? Uh, what do the land records tell us in terms of who owned the property? How was it subdivided? Are there records of, of sort of uh, tenant farmers and, th- and things like that on an area? Uh, but in terms of practicality in the field, um, at least, at least uh, in places with uh, long histories of agriculture, it's plow zone that becomes the most interesting aspect of sort of the physical uh, efforts in historic archaeology because you have this years and years, possibly 100, 200, 300 years of continuous plowing of a single area, which sort of blitzes and destroys a lot of the sort of features you might find on a landscape, unless they've been dug pretty deep, or going to post holes or cellar features or things like that. So you have this sort of constant churning of the topsoil, the first foot, foot and a half of soil. Um, so your artifacts then are, as, as, as uh, Bill was saying, uh, are sort of your, it's your distributions that matter. Uh, sort of your horizontal distribution because you, you sort of lose the vertical uh, in the stratigraphy because of the plowing. So you have to use uh, statistical modeling uh, out there in the field by how, you know, how many nails are you finding? And is there like a center where all these nails are concentrated and there may have been a structure uh, mm-hmm. near this point? Are we finding a bunch of window glass uh, sort of in this part of the field over here? Maybe there was, you know, another hint uh, of structure. So you it's a lot of a lot of statistical interpretation when you're dealing with plow zones uh, because of the spread. You're not you, you, you're losing that sort of stratigraphic integrity that we like to see a lot yeah. out in the field. You know, I, I guess one question that that I've I've fielded before from different people and having conversations with other archaeologists, this comes up occasionally too. Uh, you know, Bill White out here in the West Coast, of course, sometimes we do excavate sites, especially out here in in Nevada too. I, I can think of myself, a lot of mining sites where it could be, we could actually learn some pretty good historical information because maybe the only evidence that a mining site was ever even there was its registering with the state. You know, they, they registered their mine, they, they filed their claim. And then after that, we know literally nothing, right? So we might be able to learn something about the people that were that we're mining there. Maybe that's relevant. Maybe it's not. Who cares? But we're, we're recording that. And then with historic settlement as well out in the West, you there, there's often little information about people who came out West and settled the area. And you might be able to find something out about who they were, how they lived, you know, what was the case there. Um, and then moving further East, um, you know, to, uh, to like say Maryland and East Coast where you, Bill, are also working, uh, as you were just mentioning, some of the arguments to some of the stuff like, OK, we have these, sure, 200, 250 year old, uh, you know, ha- settlements and houses and people living back there, a deeper historic history, as you said, Bill. Uh, but again, we have a lot more information even about stuff 300 years old uh, on the East Coast than we do about Native American sites just 500 years old, you know, before uh, before European settlement. So. It, it one would one could actually kind of argue that even though we could learn some stuff from these historic sites, this small little Native American site that's right underneath it could be more historically significant because we don't really have as much information about it. How do you guys answer questions like that? What is your rationale for continuing to justify historical archaeology in those sort of contexts? Um, well, first looking at it, uh, I would remind anyone that who's ever dealt with the historic record, um, the historic record lies. Maps are wrong. <laughs> deeds yeah. are wrong. Uh, journals and diaries are written to placate the ego of the author and not necessarily to be meant to be a true, accurate representation of the time. Even histories um, have uh, biases and agendas and omissions uh, in them. So the, you know, I, I go back to always go back to the principle of ground truthing. Um, the truth is what we can dig out of the ground. Um, you know, there was never a house over here. I, we dig some holes. There's a structure there. Um, the other aspect of it, and this is sort of where 
historic archaeology, and this is where it will definitely be a dividing line with some folks, uh, will step more into the realm of the social. Um, because historic archaeology allows uh, for discussion of, of peoples who aren't necessarily going to be fully represented in a historic record. Um, the historic archaeology of slavery is much deeper and much broader than the actual historic record um, of the day-to-day lives uh, of those who uh, suffered through that. Um, the same is, is true for women and, and other uh, sort of marginalized communities. Um, so there's opportunities within historic archaeology uh, that can complement or, in fact, replace the quote-unquote historical record there. So there is a place for that. Now, does it? Is it? You know, I'm not going to value judge and have to, how much greater that is than knowing a people who were there 10,000 years ago, um, because that is absolutely important. There's no denying of that. But I do think there is a place uh, for historic archaeology and, and some of the questions that it can answer. Yeah, and there's also a, something to be said for adding people who have been kind of omitted from the historical record at all. So uh, yeah. in the case of slaves, the, it's, it's aware that at the plantation or in this room of the house in you know whatever town that there were slaves who were who were lived there and were learning more about their lives. But in the case of someone like um, Filipino immigrants or uh, Japanese immigrants or you know, outside of San Francisco, Chinese, anywhere, you know, in Idaho or, or uh, Nevada or something like that, you're, you're actually adding someone into the history that they have no national landmarks, they have no, you know, historic properties. And most people grow up never learning anything about Chinese folks living in the West at all. Uh, so in, in those cases, people who have been made invisible, oh, and also the idea that Native Americans were folks that lived in the past that have died and they're gone, right? Historical archaeology shows that they that Native Americans are not gone, that they're that they're, you know, living people in the uh, historical present at the same time as, you know, George Washington and everyone else that we're forced to learn about. Native Americans are there, active players, um, living lives and that they haven't gone away or anything. So as far as the what you do with historical archaeology, first of all, it's it's easier in a lot of spaces for folks to be able to connect with historical things because they're not so far removed from the world that we live that people can't really understand it. It's difficult for people to understand what it was like to be um, a Paleolithic hunter-gatherer because they've never seen that. And you know, even on videos, it's not even the same on YouTube or historical you know, ethnographic film. So it's difficult for folks to realize that kind of world where there's camels and horses and all those things. Uh, uh, mammoths living on the landscape. It's not as difficult for us to think about individuals sitting around uh, um, in their house or their small cabin eating food out of a bowl or a plate, just like we would, uh, or going to the store to purchase things, just like we would, even though they're buying different things. So when you're using historical archaeology, you can talk about you know, uh, how things were in the past, but also there's a, a level of uh, an ability for people who are not archaeologists to connect with that and to be able to understand that a bit better. So adding these folks into history that have been overlooked and marginalized, you know, that actually that helps people understand that Native Americans aren't just individuals who live in teepees still. They they were just like, you know, everyone else, but they were a unique uh, subset of Americans. So going off what uh, the Bills have said, I think we could sum this down to uh, part of historic archaeology's job is to improve upon the accuracy of the historic record. Um, and I think that's a, a great thing to say and a really accurate statement that you guys both made. Yeah, I'm glad we spent five minutes saying it. <laughs> <laughs> that's an archaeologist, right? Yeah. Historic archaeology, if the one thing, it's concise. That's right. That's right. Um, <laughs> well, the, the one thing that uh, Bill was talk- mentioned, um, and, and I think this is a really important concept is that when you talk about like indigenous archaeology or, you know, Native American archaeology or First Nations archaeology or whatever, a lot of people, a lot of archaeologists automatically assume you're talking about pre-contact. Um, and, and it's like, well, that that's, you know, they, di- they didn't suddenly disappear. I mean, you know, there's still stuff going on. I'm, I mean, you know, I can't, I look around my neighborhood and there's plenty of First Nations people mm-hmm. living there. It's, uh, um, that the notion that, you know, that, you know, they had, yes, they had their own history and their own, you know, cultures and, and things got massively changed. Uh, thank you, colonialism. But 
like they didn't disappear. They're, they're still there. And um, there is really good opportunity, particularly uh, I, I see it in Alberta, for a indigenous historical archaeology. Indeed. Let's uh, let's jump across the pond in the last four uh, or so minutes of this segment. Doug, when you're, you know, you came from the United States, of course, and uh, have done archaeology here and had this sort of polar concept of historic and prehistoric archaeology that some of us have. I mean, let's be honest, when you talk to somebody in CRM archaeology in this country, they're either historic or prehistorically focused, typically, um, or at least they think they are. Uh, the reality is they're working on whatever the hell they're getting paid to work on. But Doug, when you're over in Scotland, what is this, what is this thought between historic and, say, prehistoric how far back do you have to go for something to be prehistoric how far you know what what does that dividing line kind of look like um yeah that's super complicated um <laughs> but it is <laughs> yeah so uh in in the uk in the uk which again will differ between countries so i don't want to speak for everyone in an entire continent with you know 50 plus countries in it uh but in the uk Historical archaeology usually gets called with uh, lumped in under what you'd call post-medieval archaeology, um, mm-hmm. and you know uh, SHA Society of Historical Archaeology and the Society of Post-Medieval Archaeology also tend to do like some joint conferences and stuff, and so it's it covers a similar time period, um, fourteen fifteen hundreds onwards, roughly. Um, mm-hmm. But it, it is more complicated, and it comes down to regional stuff. So, like, um, England and Wales have a Roman period, uh, whereas Scotland doesn't, except for the southern part of Scotland, for, like, a brief couple of decades. Um, but essentially, if you do a chronology in Scotland, it's all Iron Age from, you know, well before the Romans to... Uh, Roughly medieval, so maybe to you know, like a thousand AD, maybe eight hundred, depending on who you talk to and where they break it down. So um, there's all sorts of time periods there. Um, but you do run into a lot of issues with people not quite understanding the difference between history, archaeology, and historical archaeology. So um, you run into quite a few. I run into quite a few people who will be like, oh you came over to Scotland. Is it because we have, um, you know, more archeology span and more history and it's North America has had, has had a longer presence of people on it than most of the UK. Most of the UK, when Clovis was happening in the, uh, in North America, South America, Central America, the UK was under an ice sheet. There was no one living here. Um, Mm -hmm. so in effect, actually the archeological record goes back. Okay. So there's some paleolithic stuff in the UK, but for the most part, most recently there's been people who've, people have been in the Americas a lot longer than people have been in the uh, United Kingdom or Ireland or, you know, the whole British Isles, if you want to cover that. Um, and the same with, you know, places like Iceland and, uh, some of the islands up there, much more recent people making it there. And so you get this sort of um, prejudice uh, idea of like, oh, you know, there's, there's so much more history here. Um, when actually most of the written records from uh, you have you have older written records with the Omec and Mayan uh, and different you know Mesoamerican people than you do um, in the United Kingdom. I mean, you have some a few Roman records, and then it just disappears, and then you kind of get some things like bead and um, these various christian annuals and um sort of stories that are actually incredibly inaccurate as well so um really historic doesn't happen till maybe a thousand years ago 1500 if you know if you're being generous um and actually so where i'm at in scotland you don't get written records until yeah maybe a thousand so most of the stuff they're talking you're listening to like bead who is a missionary down in uh, England who kind of wrote about a bunch of stuff that may or may not be accurate. Most likely most of it isn't. You get some stuff from Ireland, um, the Ulster annuals, but essentially, yeah, it's very different. And people don't realize that. They kind of assume that, oh, 
the Neolithic, the Mesolithic, you know, um, Iron Age people, the Celts, that's all, they all assume that that's historical and that there's written records and that we know a lot, mm -hmm. but when actually it's pretty much the same as doing archaeology in America. We don't have any written records. Um, and to be honest, the written record similar to, I'd say similar to how the States are and that, you know, vast majority of the pioneering and people going out into interacting with um, you know, First Nations, Native Americans, and stuff like that. It's not recorded until you get someone who comes along, like Lewis and Clark, come along, and they're like, "Oh yes, we're we're the first ones to record that." Except that they <laughs> there's been like for a hundred years before that, there was plenty of French traders and uh, British traders, and you know, people knew about it. It just wasn't recorded. So, yeah. um, very similar. You know, there's there's lots of stuff that, um, even quite recently it's it's archaeology like we don't have we have some maps that actually they don't get maps until they try to conquer the scots in mid 1700s of scotland you don't get accurate maps at all so mm -hmm. you just you just don't know and anything that's only a couple of years old it's basically archaeology there are no yeah. written records well then that's uh incredibly different obviously than it is over here um but i would imagine i would imagine very similar to uh, a lot of other places in the world as well so well with that uh let's come back to crm archaeology in this country and historic archaeology in this country on the other side of the break back in a second Tired of the webinars and training offered by the big organizations not being free for members and not really covering what we need? Team Black has the answers. Check out arccert.black forward slash main for our upcoming webinar schedule. All of our webinars happen once a month and seating is limited. Learn everything from field tech basics to drones to digital workflows. We have more classes coming online every month. Classes are always one hour and cost just $20. Classes like building a CV and getting a job are always free. That's right. We'll help you get a job, then we'll be here when you want to level up your skills. If you are a professional subscriber to the APN at arcpodnet.com slash members, then you get all of Team Black's offerings for free as part of your membership. We have Team Black memberships coming that will give the same for the APN. So $20 a month gets you all the APN swag and extras plus free training from Team Black. So check out arccert.black for more information and level up your skill set today. That's arccert.black. This network is listener supported. We're trying to move away from paid advertising while also creating new shows and supporting the ones we have. The APN has never and will never make a serious profit on our podcast. Every little dime we make goes back into the network and improving show quality. So become a member today at www.arcpodnet.com slash members to show your support, get some extras, and be a benefactor for archaeological education. Members get stickers, a coffee mug, a t-shirt, bonus content, early access to episodes, a private Slack team to talk to other members and the hosts, and full access to training on Team Black over at arccert.black. So check out our memberships at www.arcpodnet.com slash members today and support archaeological education. That's www.arcpodnet.com slash members. Now back to the show. All right, welcome back to the final segment of the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 152, and we're talking about historic archaeology. And in this segment, we're going to talk about uh, a topic that, my God, I've heard every single year since I got in CRM, is what's going historic this year and why are people so pissed off about it? So I, I'm, I looked up uh, before this recording a few things that were either invented in 1969 or introduced around that time. Uh, and is something you know we could find from that time period. One of the things that surprised me was Capri Sun. The foil pouch Capri Sun was invented by a German company in 1969, although it wasn't introduced to the U.S. until 1981. But that doesn't mean we couldn't find it on some uh, some historic site uh, from 1969. Somebody went over and brought a German Capri Sun back. That's amazing. Um, I know, right? <laughs> uh, glue sticks, invented in 1969. Um, micro cassettes, like the kind you would see in the old uh, answering machines. Uh, Nerf products, the Nerf company was uh, was developed in 1969. Tic Tacs. Uh, now, one thing that I heard somebody say just recently, and I had to look up my own history on this, was pull tab cans. 
But pull tab cans were invented in 1962, were in wide use by 1963, and then the ring on the tab that became the more common thing was introduced in 1965. So they've actually been historic for a few years now, not just 1969. So uh, what else do you guys have? What are your thoughts on on things going historic in uh, in this uh, new year? The moon landing. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. like, <laughs> exactly. and, and, I mean, nobody's going to argue against that one, right? Well, unless, they, unless you think it's not real. But <laughs> finally, my dream of doing space archaeology will finally. <laughs> right. No, we, we, we need finally we need record to, those features. We need to make a mission. We have to, nice. we got to go, uh, out, you know, do a, a monitoring just to check the condition of the site. So I'm down. Yeah. I'll do, I'll do monitoring of moon landing sites. That'd be awesome. I mean, that is, that is pretty cool. I mean, we have stuff that, that, that had, that had breached the moon prior to humans. Um, but the first, you're right. The first extraplanetary human event, you know, is now 50 years old. But like we mentioned in the first segment, uh, if the moon landing were subject to the National Register of Historic Places for the United States, it would be on it <laughs> because of its historical importance as an event. So, well, yes, know. but and, but <laughs> actually, this this might be a good topic for a future show of could a moon landing be on the NHPA? I mean, it's on the moon, right? That's not U.S. territory. No, it's not, and I don't think it could be. Um, but I think, if I'm not mistaken, the uh, there's people, including um, oh, she goes by space archaeologist. It's Alice Gorman. Yes, Alice Gorman. Thank you. Yeah, um, of Australia. Yeah, yeah. Her and others, I, I think, were either in the process or or succeeded in making it like something akin to a UNESCO World Heritage Site, that type of thing. She yeah, has. Was- she's um, published a lot on it. I think there is something about it being declared maybe it might be unesco or it might be like united nations or something like that it is um and she's done a lot of publications about yeah. all the stuff that we put into outer space and what will be future heritage and archaeology or current as well because you know there's a lot of satellites and stuff that have been up there and are mm-hmm. older than 50 years and are technically the property of the United States government slash I'm not actually sure how legality works in outer space. Um, But I assume if you've set up a satellite, you own that satellite and it comes under the the laws of your country. I could be wrong. Yeah, I think you're right. It might be under maritime laws too, right? Because a ship even if it is an archaeological, like the United States basically never use, loses a ship. So if it was a U.S. ship, even if it's an archaeological site, it's still U.S. government property. Well, yeah, because like ships and even airplanes, because looking stuff up real quick, I found the uh, National Park Service's National Register Bulletin on the guidelines for evaluating and documenting historic aviation properties, which include uh, the vehicles themselves. Kind of like ships can be treated as historic places. And so they could be themselves a site, like a wreck. Uh, the planes themselves can become historic places. Because um, I was found that the uh, Lunar Landing Research Facility in Hampton, Virginia, at the Langley Research Center, is on the National Register. But that's terrestrial, so that doesn't quite count. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that does make me think of the uh, like the post-war excavations of downed fighters, though. Um, mm-hmm. Like, you know, you, you regularly hear about... Uh, people finding, you know, a, a crashed uh, a plane from World War One or World War Two, and and they, they start digging it up. But, you know, it'd be interesting to know if that was covered under um, this sort of legal environment. I think it would be more of a political maneuver for a country. Like, let's say um, we, we've interviewed people before, or at least I have, that have gone over to, say, Vietnam and excavated excavated aircraft crashes from the Vietnam War from the United States in order to um, obtain the remains of the service members that were obviously killed during that action. And uh, I think it's, from what I know, it's probably more of a political maneuver for that country to say, yeah, come on over and collect the remains of your people and, 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 you know, document this, this area. But it doesn't mean we own it. I mean, we crash landed a an airplane or something on their soil during a war at which we were the, you know, 
aggressors against them. <laughs> so um, I'm, I'm not sure where the legal property boundaries lie in there. But going back to space real quick, uh, if I'm not mistaken, and I'll try to find a link to this regarding the laws of uh, space ownership and like the moon and stuff like that. But I think you guys are right is where artifacts and, and equipment are are owned. But from what I understand, no one can own uh, according to like international and world uh, treaty type stuff. No one can own property on the moon yet. No one can own property on Mars. You know, we can go there. We can land wherever we want. We can do research. Any country can, but you can't like ownership to it. You can't like plant a flag, even though we did plant a flag. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean that soil is us property. Um, but we still own the flag. We own the flag, but we don't own the property. There's nothing currently stopping anybody from going up there. And this is what some of those people in the space archaeology world were trying to do was basically get a boundary put around the moon landing site. Because if you land a spacecraft next to the moon landing site, for one thing, if you're not far enough away, you're going to blow it all to hell, you know, if you try to land too close. And then when you do get close, footprints don't go away up there. They, um, you know, because there's not there's no atmosphere. There's a very, 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 very tiny, thin atmosphere on the moon. It's not enough to wipe away footprints like it happens on a sandy beach here in this in this world so if you go up there you can quickly change the character and damage the site just by walking around it just by walking up to it to the edge so and then where's the edge you know it would have to be mapped you'd have to know and they're trying to put a boundary around that so it's pretty interesting interesting deal is that not a years ago there was a futurama episode where the guy like (laughs) goes to the moon landing and then just like puts his boot right over um, the first step, and it's like, oh, my foot's bigger than Neil Armstrong, or maybe it was smaller, or something like that. <laughs> but basically, just like desecrated the entire site. Um, <laughs> right, right. But yeah, I guess in in theory, especially with like private companies now trying to do outer space travel, um, Elon Musk could just fly up to the moon, land on the moon site, pick up the. Well, I guess he probably couldn't take the flag, but could, could. you know? We'll stop him. Well, uh, yeah, I guess it would, well, stolen government property if he ever made it back to the, to earth. He wouldn't come back. He's going to stop there on his way to his home in Mars. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess. Yeah. You could just go there and you could probably, cause the, they left a lot of stuff there as well. So people could they just did, go yeah. there and take it as souvenirs and if they wanted to. Yeah. He's not even American. He was born in South Africa. So he's like, screw this flag. I'm taking it with me. Yeah. Well, I guess that's the problem you run into with a lot of wrecks as well, is that they get picked clean, you know, sea ship wrecks. They basically get picked clean after time because divers will go down and be like, oh, I'm just going to take a little um, souvenir. And uh, I think there was like a boat in um, Florida that was like the brick, brick ship. So a ship carrying a bunch of bricks. It was really popular with divers, and now there's no bricks left. It's basically destroyed the entire site because everyone just took a brick brick away every time they went down there as a souvenir. That is a great like micro analogy to the greater problem of people taking artifacts off the landscape. You know, it's it's like oh, I'm just going to take this one thing because it's the desert, it's the Great Basin, and nobody cares. But eventually, there will be nothing. You know, there will be nothing for people to grab. I mean, I know that's probably a long ways off, but. That's it's the same kind of deal, you know. It's just on a bigger scale. Or with our pull tab cans. Uh, and there you go. There you go. So speaking of pull tab cans, do you guys can you guys think of anything that's on your radar to go historic in uh, twenty nineteen? I don't know about something that's going historic in in two thousand nineteen, but the entire universe of plastics is like un undiscovered right and so like archaeologically if you think about it a thousand years from now we are we will be the plastic people so our entire cultural horizon around the world just like you know there's you know metalworking people and there's you know a ceramic period that begins in most parts of the world we're going to be the plastic people all of the cultures around the world will be these various different varieties of plastic and and there's like no archaeological research there's a little bit of research on bakelite and cellulose or uh, not cellulite cellulose based plastics but there's not on the petroleum derived plastics that we commonly you know yeah bill that's not that's not true. I dump all my plastics in the ocean, so it ends up in that spot that we made down in the Pacific. <laughs> yeah, so the archaeology of the future is basically me just hunting all the whales that ate all your plastic. <laughs> That's right. That's Each right. one of them is like a time capsule. And It's, it's going to be a good opportunity for uh, maritime archaeology to uh, go out there and, and uh, uh, excavate that uh, the great uh, plastic. 
the, the great Whatever. Pacific garbage patch. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm waiting for that to get settled, you know, like, like people to live on it. I'm yeah, like, I was so. going to say, I'm waiting for people from San Francisco <laughs> to realize that's the cheapest real estate. And then it's, right? easier, it's easier to commute back and forth from the, the plastic garbage float flotilla than it is to actually live here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so instead of, uh, instead of thinking then about, about what's maybe going historic in 2019, uh, what do you guys think, especially you, Bill White, um, are some of the big questions in historic archeology, span at least in the stuff that you're studying? Um, what are some of the big questions in historic archeology span that still need to be answered? Some of the real, some of the really big ones. Ooh, that's a, that's a, wow. It <laughs> might be a hard question to answer. <laughs> It, uh, these days, there's a lot of uh, writing in historical archaeology, but it really boils down to understanding complexity. Because mm-hmm. for the longest time, we had, you know, and it, it was good. It was work that had to be done. The the first stages of historical archaeology, in addition to just justifying that it should be a, a, a form of inquiry, was uh, identifying the artifacts. Right. So the culture history period happened in you know American archaeology, trying to differentiate these different um, Native American. Uh, areas into cultural regions, right? And once they had done that using arrowheads and, and ceramics or wh- whatever, they have a different constellation of uh, material culture and archaeological features, they really quickly realized that that was only telling them a small amount of the story. Well, that's the same thing that happened with historical archaeology. And in the 60s and well, maybe starting in the 50s, but going up into the 70s, it was a lot. There's a lot of identification of artifacts, specifically with um, East Coast stuff, colonial uh, period ceramics, and other things. And those were really important to being able to delineate and identify historic uh, features, deposits that we were going to call historical archaeology. Mm-hmm. Well, by the 80s and 90s, folks started to realize that there needed to be more nuance and more understanding. And so, uh, there's definitely an addition of um, looking at race, uh, specifically African American. It starts with, but then you know, really quickly Chinese, overseas Chinese uh, um, sites, and then uh, kind of an acknowledgement that Native Americans even existed in yeah. historical periods. So there's some Native American uh, historical archaeology that happens at that time. There's also a discussion that gender exists and that it, it needed to be you know acknowledged. Well, after doing that for about 20 years, we're starting to realize that it's never just one thing. And so a lot of the complaints of the old school archaeologists is no one ever does artifact identification articles anymore. Instead, they're always talking about these other aspects of of complexity of human life. So adding um, uh, other genders that we hadn't necessarily thought of, you know, LBGTQ uh, genders mm-hmm. coming from different kinds of theoretical perspectives, not just the same neoliberal economic approach. I guess maybe I wouldn't say neoliberal, but the same capitalist economic approach towards labor and um, people's lives to maybe starting to think about some of the ways that identities are situational and that the, these things that we've been saying have more than one meaning. Not only do they have more than one meaning, but they have multiple layers of meaning that. Um, uh, have uh, value or speak at certain times and places to different people. And so it's like a, a language that everybody interprets differently. And I think that now historical archaeology is trying to get into that. They're, they're starting to go beyond just the fact that women existed in the past, that women were African-American. Now that in certain situations, maybe they were seen as women, maybe they were seen as mothers, maybe they actually had, a, you know, suppressed other identity that they weren't allowed to express at that same time because they had a different kind of sexual orientation or maybe they were women that work but they were also you know upstanding um uh, uh matriarchs or that they also are the kind of individuals that were instrumental in labor movements even though they didn't write all the stuff right so these different levels and aspects of looking at the same thing i think a lot of times that's what's coming out now in american historical archaeology hmm. I think another thing um, to be looked at is sort of um, embracing uh, other forms of documentation besides writing. I mean, it's always sort of been there, but um, historic archaeology relies upon written documentation um, at its core, where things like photographs, maps, digital records, audio records, video records are sort of supplementary if you have some to add flavor to add for a conference paper or a book 
that's nice, um, but it's not always seen as primary documentation in the same way that a written uh, document is. Um, so I think a, a challenge for us going future, especially as things are becoming much more digital, um, is to incorporate them as true primary sources. Uh, how often do we, before we begin a, a phase one project, actively go out to look for photographic documentation to help explain an area? Uh, how often are we looking for audio or visual documentation? Now that we are clearly in an era where 50 plus years ago, there is audio and visual and video documentation of, of places. Uh, we don't often incorporate that into our research um, in the same way we do our written stuff. So um, how can we embrace these things to, to make it easier, more functional within our models uh, of, of doing that? So that's, that's sort of the, the big questions I'm thinking of is, is that historic archaeology isn't just the written word. Um, hmm. It's just documentation of all kinds. And, and also trying to reach out to people. It's the same thing with it's the same thing that's happening with uh, all forms of archaeology, trying to connect with publics. Okay, well, we've just got a couple minutes left, and I just want to ask you guys one question real fast uh, with in, in response to it, that pertains to all archaeologists in uh, the professional archaeologists. You always hear people talking about how crazy they get saying, oh, when when blah 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 is historic, you know, I'm gonna quit. I've even said it. My joke has always been Gatorade bottles. And uh, just doing a quick search, Gatorade was invented in 1965 and commercialized in, wait for it, 1969. So Gatorade, is officially historic as of 2019. And I was told, but I haven't looked up any proof of this, that Gatorade first came out in glass bottles. And I have specifically said uh, that when I find Gatorade plastic bottles that I have to record, that I'm going to quit. Um, now, I'm, of course, joking. I will record whatever I have to record based on the rules. I honestly don't care. But some people really get insane about saying, hey, when this comes out, you know, it's uh, it's crazy. Um, when this comes out, I'm not going to record it. So, what do you guys, what do you guys think about that? Is there anything that makes you crazy, or can you think of why we get crazy when that happens? I, I don't understand why, because in a sense, archaeology is a method for exploring the past, but we don't have. There's no limit. Um, you have people who do contemporary archaeology. There's a contemporary archaeology journal, or yeah, for publications. Um, I know some people who do modern graffiti work um, using archaeological techniques because we have a, a series of methods and techniques that really we apply to physical remains slash also, you know, with historical archaeology, we bring in written word and then we're bringing in audio and visual and maps. And um, it's a set of skills and techniques that really shouldn't matter what you apply it to. Um, it doesn't make it any less archaeological. It's it should be agnostic. At least that's my personal opinion. I don't see why it matters what you apply it to, as long as you're just applying it to find out and help you answer your questions. Because I think people like to just complain. I think it's also fear of one's own mortality. Um, <laughs> as I'm now glaring within too many close years than I'd like to, to 50. Um, the idea that I could, in within my own lived experience, uh, have interacted with things which could be documented as historic uh, is sort of an existentially frightening aspect. It's a reminder of one's own, own mortality. And I think that might be some of the drive behind it because we don't want to acknowledge that we're getting old. Um, but mm -hmm. by having these things recorded as archaeological sites, we're old. It does always seem to be 50-year-old and plus archaeologists that are driving the discussion towards, towards hatred of recording certain things. <laughs> Maybe that's there's the a, I was going to say there's a couple of bottles that I don't think are safe for work that I posted in the show notes, like <laughs> Zimas. Zimas. When you're digging in, in the deposit as Zima, is that the horizon where you're just kind of like, yeah, I think we're just going to strip off everything that <laughs> came from the Zima horizon or the Crystal Pepsi horizon. Nice. Nice. All right, guys. Well, I think that's about all we have time for this time. Uh, you know, comment wherever you saw this. I want to know. Uh, I want to know one of two things. Either A, what do you know of specifically that's going historic in 2019 besides Gatorade? 
And B, what is the one thing that terrifies you that when it does go historic, you know that you've either reached a certain age or you're just done? Like you don't want to record stuff anymore. It's not archaeology. <laughs> Crystal Pepsi. Crystal Pepsi. <laughs> that's, that's, that's it for you. <laughs> nice. All right. Well, again, leave those comments in the uh, in the comments either for this podcast at arcpodnet.com forward slash podcast forward slash 152 or on Facebook, Twitter, wherever you heard this episode. And thanks a lot. And we'll see you next time. One more episode before this year is over. So we'll see what we talk about next time. That's it for another episode of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.arcpodnet.com slash podcast. Please comment and share anywhere you see the show. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or just email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Support the show and the network at arcpodnet.com slash members. Get some swag and extra content while you're there. Send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. Goodbye, everyone. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Thanks, everyone, for joining me this week. <laughs> uh, thank you also to the listeners for tuning in, and you bastards, we will see you in the field. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Yes, I don't even know how I'm going to edit that. Don't. Don't. <laughs> this show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.